Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs> and now your host, and we just call him Ben. Chicago Raider columnist Ben Jarofsky. Uh, Peter, <laughs> I'm sorry, I just couldn't get it out. Uh, Peter Cunningham is in the studio. He was here, Pete was here about a month ago. And uh, we did the, we sit down for about an hour. He played his guitar, didn't bring his guitar, as I pointed out, a little disappointed in that. Peter says, man, you just want me for my guitar. I'm just going to come without my guitar and see if you really like me. So no guitar today, but plenty of political discussion. As I pointed out in that last interview, uh, Peter's more of the center than I am, has always been. I've known him for 20 years, Peter. Uh, and he's always been the guy, as I put, I said it last time, that the Roms and the Dailies of the world would send a deal with me. And uh, that's kind of like his job to deal with lefties like Ben and Miles. Well, you never met Miles, but you, if you would, if he'd been around when you started out, you'd been dealing with him. Uh, so anyway, it's great to have you on the show because I believe as much as possible, we should hear from all ends of the Democratic Party. How about that, Peter? I think that's a great philosophy. We're a Big Ten party. Especially if we want to win. We're a Big Ten party. And we will discuss all of these things because that's on my mind these days. Uh, the lessons that can be derived from Kentucky, especially if we want to win. Uh, what went down in Kentucky and what lessons the Democrats can learn from that. Uh, so we'll do that deep dive. Let's start with the local. And uh, we'll start with the latest, latest news. Uh, Police Chief Eddie Johnson has stepped down. And one of the conversations, uh, Peter, I I alluded to this last time we were in the show, Uh, we would have these conversations about the role that police have traditionally and historically played in the city of Chicago, the role they played in politics, the the sort of concern bordering on fear that mayors had about antagonizing the police department. We talked about that the last time you were on the show. So what, given all that, what direction do you would you like to see Lori Lightfoot go in uh, re- finding a replacement for Eddie Johnson? Well, I think, you know, one of the really, really big priorities for the next soup is to drive reforms that are needed. Everybody knows that the department is, you know, hidebound and uh, especially some of the spe- specific divisions like the detective division. Uh, they're not diverse. They're not uh, well-trained. They're not, they don't seem to be very enlightened. Uh, there have been some attempts to do community policing and things like that, but they really haven't succeeded. Uh, they have a trust problem with the community. And so you need a superintendent who's, who's going to be mindful of all that and isn't just going to be talking tough about cracking down because we know that that doesn't work very well. It doesn't uh, make the streets a whole lot safer. It, it breaks trust between the community, and, and it just leads to... Um, you know, low clearance rate in, in uh, the homicides because nobody will, you know, cooperate with the police. So we have, we have some really, really deep-rooted problems, and I know the mayor, uh, you know, was elected in part on her commitment to do something about that. So that's a really complicated choice, and, you know, in, one, in some sense you have a choice. Uh, someone inside who knows the department, knows the people, knows the city, knows the politics, knows the community leaders— and someone from outside who can shake things up. And we've done both over the years. Um, I think on balance, the outsiders have not worked that well. Uh, Try to think which outsiders in, in our lifetime. Jody Weiss. Oh was my goodness, one. Jody Weiss. <laughs> How can I forget Jody Weiss? Yeah. And Gary McCarthy. Big Mac, yeah. So, so you had two outsiders. Um, well, let me just say before you, uh, we throw, completely throw Big Mac under the bus. He was a very popular choice in that first six months, politically speaking. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you recall, I don't know if you were in Chicago or if you were in Washington with this, but uh, Mayor Rahm, in his infinite wisdom, decided it would be a good idea to bring the G8 summit to Chicago. And there uh, were protests in the streets of Chicago. It was like a lockdown situation. And Gary McCarthy, you remember, he stood behind the phalanx of 
big burly police officers on Roosevelt Road who were confronting uh, demonstrators. And he was widely popular. I think he was more popular than Rahm was at that time. So when you say that it didn't work out, I think in early days of Gary Big Mac McCarthy, it did work out. For a minute there, I guess it did. And I do know that that episode was well-received, and he was seen as the guy we needed at the time, and, you know, Rom chose him. Um, I was in Washington at the time, but I do know about the, about that. Uh, but ultimately, you know, his his view was we're going to crack down. He, he had the same view when he was in Newark and in New York. He was seen as part of the, came out of the kind of the Giuliani um, era of uh, New York policing. Eventually went over to Newark, where he ended up in a consent decree over there. So... You know, on balance, you look back and it ultimately uh, ended with uh, the Laquan episode and say, OK, was he the right guy for the job at the time? I don't think so. And as I look at it, in many ways, I thought uh, Johnson was a great choice because he kind of just settled things down after that and got everybody to say, OK, let's remember we're all Chicagoans. We're all here and we got to work together. And I think he's maintained that spirit. Now, again, is he a reform guy, a guy who's been in, on the inside for 30 years, a guy who, frankly, was at the table for probably too many <laughs> too many meetings he shouldn't have been at, from what I hear. But I think he, he, he's a good guy and he served the city well. And, you know, uh, I, you know, but but now Laurie has a big mayor life. I should say, I'm sorry. Mayor life. has a big, big choice ahead of her. All right. Now, uh, we've had this conversation in terms of test scores with the public schools uh, numbers and the way they're used by politicians to make themselves look good. Let's let's flip it to the police. Over the last couple of years, actual the the, the murder rate in the city is declining. The number of people shot is declining. The number of people murdered, killed is declining. Uh, do you attribute that to something that uh, Police Chief Eddie Johnson in particular has done? A couple of things. Um, and I should say that I'm doing some work with some of the violence prevention groups here in Chicago right now. So I just thought I should disclose that. But um, they have brought some great new technology. And I think that started under McCarthy. So let's give credit where credit's due. They brought some great new technology and sort of the, the like the CompStat type approach, which is really about looking at data very carefully, really looking at crime tends, trends and trying to anticipate where the crime will be. And I think they've gotten a lot better at that. So that's one factor. The, you know, I think the equally important one, and again, I, you know, I'm working in this area right now, is that you're starting to you know, engage the community. You're starting to look at violence prevention programs. These are the things where you intervene with kids who are at risk, young men who are at risk. You have community elders. Some of them are ex, ex-offenders or formerly incarcerated guys. You have some of those guys helping intervene when they hear about it. You're monitoring social media. You're keeping an eye on what's going on. And you're able to maybe prevent some shootings that otherwise might happen. And quite often they're driven by fairly petty stuff, little Ill insults online, things like that. Um, uh, so I think they're probably all a factor. But the decline, as you know, there was a big spike in 2016, uh, right after McCarthy stepped down or was was stepped down. <laughs> uh, and uh, right after the, the yeah. Laquan video came out mm -hmm. and right after uh, Mayor Manuel pointed out that, you know, they're all in fetal position and they're not, they're afraid to do their jobs. Did you buy that? And uh, yeah, I think like everything, there's some truth to it. You know, is it a hundred percent true? Was every cop in fetal position? I'm sure not. But were some of them, were they anxious? Were they afraid to be the next headline? Unquestionably. And, but the um, notion of fetal position? Well, it's it's a uh, metaphor. Oh, and I, I don't see. think they were all curled up in their bed. Uh, he was feeling very metaphorical. Mm -hmm. that yes, day. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, um, mm -hmm. I think that um, so the decline of the le so there was a huge spike that year. We got up to about seven hundred and sixty, which, as you know, was not the all time high. We were in the nine hundreds during the nineteen nineties. Yeah, but we got to 760 killings. But go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we got up to, um, you know, 760 killings and something like almost 4,000 shootings. Mm -hmm. So now we're back to basically the pre-2016 level. So we're at 435, 440 shooting, uh, murders, about 2,300 shootings. So we might close the year close to 500 um, homicides, maybe 470. 
So that's where we were for a decade before 2016. So I would say we're just sort of back to normal. And normal is terrible. Normal is our, our, our murder rate is six times Los Angeles' murder rate. And it's, excuse me, three times Los Angeles' murder rate and six times New York's rate. Mm. So we're not, you know, the last thing we should be doing is sort of saying, hey, it's declining, so let's, you know, relax. We still have a terrible, terrible gun violence problem in Chicago. Peter, why... What do you attribute that to? I've, I've asked this question of so many people who have come on the show, and Mick Dumkey and I have had conversations into the late night on this. Why is Chicago's murder rate so much higher than New York and L.A.? Well, for one thing, they have been investing in violence prevention programs that the city is just starting to do now. So uh, Mayor Emanuel created an Office of Violence Prevention, and just so everybody understands, that's about really... That's not about police. That's about community groups and intervention company, um, organizations and, you know, uh, job training and uh, positive alternatives for young people who are at risk of shooting or being shot. So New York and L.A. were investing in this for years, long before Chicago. Uh, Mayor Emanuel created the office but didn't really put a lot of money into it. Uh, Mayor Life was now proposed upping the budget to about $11 million. A bunch of people are organizing trying to get her to do 50 million because we feel like we really need a full court press. The, the entire public safety budget in Chicago is $2.7 billion. 50 million is 2%. So, to get back to your question, why do I think it's happening? I mean, you know, I know what I've read from everybody else. I've heard everybody else say that we have a long, long history of gang violence that's a little unusual, going back to Al Capone and Jeff Fort and Larry Hoover and, you know, the gangster disciples and the. Blackstone Rangers. We have sort of a gang culture that's a little bit more deeply embedded than it is in other cities. I mean, you've heard of the Bloods and the Crips in uh, L.A., so I just don't know if that answer is adequate. Uh, you certainly have, uh, it seems, more gun trafficking here uh, for uh, a bunch of weird reasons. You know, we are the crossroads of America, so guns fr come from the South. We are surrounded by, you know, very um, uh, states that have very lax gun laws. Uh, which is, you know, L.A. is a little further away from a state with a lax gun law than Chicago is from, say, Indiana or from uh, Wisconsin. So I think that's a factor. Um, I think that we have a lot of um, concentrated poverty in Chicago still, and I don't know whether that triggers, triggers bad word, I don't know whether that prompts different policing strategies, a feeling that, like, we're uh, out of our, uh, you know, this is beyond our control. There's a, there was an old expression in New York, cops used to call when there were gang wars, they'd call it a self-cleaning oven, and they would treat it as like something like, you know what, we're just gonna let this war play itself out and let these guys, you know, knock each other off. And uh, I, I, I have no idea whether, whether there's any truth to that or whether that's a factor, but it does seem that there's a number of factors that make Chicago especially prone to gun violence. And politically uh, speaking, uh, the the fraternal order police, the current union, uh, uh, the the leader, the current leadership of the fraternal order police has positioned itself uh, far to the right of where anybody in the city is. Uh, they're essentially Trump supporters. They gave a no vote confident a vote of no confidence to Eddie Johnson uh, because he would not attend uh, the uh, Trump speech. Yeah. And I think the vast majority of Chicagoans, in contrast, were applauding Eddie Johnson for not. Uh, attending that speech so clearly there's a gap between the the rank and file or at least their union leaders the union which isn't always exactly aligned well we'll get into that with the file. teachers but yes. uh, uh but terms with their leadership they elected them i mean they they are the chosen representatives of the police rank and file and uh so how do you think that factors into all this? Well, I don't know. What is he saying? We should go back to, like, you know, unleash the police and let them do what they want to do. We're, I don't know what we spend in, on uh, police settlements in the last couple of years, $500 million or something like that. So uh, I don't think that police even want that. I don't think they, they get up every day and say to themselves, I just want to go out and beat some heads. Uh, I don't think they especially like a system that holds them accountable for a certain quota or a number of arrests. I think that we should be rewarding them for declines in crime in their sectors. That's what we should be recognizing. Less crime, not number of arrests or how many guys you put in jail, but how much safer it feels to the community and how much safer it in fact is. 
And, uh, you know, there are a number of neighborhoods where they put that technology in there and where you have that combination of violence prevention programs. And you're seeing, you know, better results. There. When you say rewarding them, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, start by recognizing it. And then I think uh, to the extent that there's a promotional process in the police department that's uh, not overly political or whatever, you start to recognize the guys who have who have built that relationship of trust with the community, the guys who have, uh, you know, boosted their clearance rate, not because they beat confessions out of people, but because they have cooperating witnesses, uh, you know, it, it, guys who set that kind of a tone, that I'm, I'm looking to build relationships with the community, I'm looking to build trust with the community, and uh, when I have something that happens in my community, I want to be able to find my allies and work with them to, uh, to address it. The department ought to be organized to recognize that kind of behavior as opposed to tough guys because, you know, tough guy policing has a lot of downsides to it. Not to say some people don't value it and in some situations, you know, you know, a strong, strong police presence is required. But for the most part, I think it, 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 it hasn't been the right strategy. All right, let's move from pol police to uh, teachers, from uh, law enforcement to schools and to education. Uh, we've had, uh, we've d dedicated a lot of uh, talk and coverage for the last two weeks to the teacher strike. Uh, and I read your essay that you wrote on it uh, in the aftermath. And I have to say, uh, in terms of your worldview, is vastly different than the one generally articulated by me. So why don't you give it a, a opportunity, folks may not have read it, uh, first of all, tell folks where they can read it so they can go read it themselves and then uh, sort of summarize your view of the teacher strike. Yeah, I, I wrote a um, uh, sort of a postmortem about the strike on Education Post, which is a website uh, of an organization I founded a couple of years ago. I'm now on the board. I'm no longer running it, but I do still write for them occasionally. I mean, my basic view was that um, the strike was not necessary. Uh, and that teachers and kids paid a high price for it. Um, teachers lost six days of pay, and that works out to about $66 million. It's about $11 million uh, for every day. Uh, and that $66 million has essentially funded the, uh, the, the, the money that they wanted for nurses and, and uh, uh, yeah, social workers, librarians, et cetera. So I think in, 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 a, uh, in a sense, that money came out of the pockets of teachers. Um, and of course, I think kids lost 11 days of learning in October. And I think all this talk about, you know, makeup days and everything is fine. But a makeup day in, you know, in, in June doesn't really mean nearly as much as learning days in October when you're right at the front end of the school year and, the, you know, everybody's in full mode and you've gotten over the sort of the opening opening weeks of school and now kids you know they're 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 organized they're learning the teachers are in the groove and then suddenly all that got disrupted so i think kids and teachers paid a high price for this they ultimately accepted the offer that was on the table before the strike 16 percent in terms of salary yeah, i was gonna say uh yeah in terms of salary there yeah. was no offer on the table in terms of hiring more nurses librarians and social workers nor was there an offer on the table before the strike in terms of lower class size which were the fundamental differences between uh, the teachers and uh, mayor lightfoot right and my feeling about both of those issues is they're all legitimate issues and kudos to the union for forcing them to the table is that the right way to resolve those kinds of issues by law it is but whatever, the law is one thing. By law, the only thing they're supposed to strike over is salary and benefits. But they did force those issues to the table, and that's to their credit. But how those issues are going to be resolved is a very, very open question. There's a couple of factors. One is, is that most of the overcrowding is in the black and Latino, I mean, is in the white and the Latino schools. And it's, they're over-enrolled. And they don't have extra classroom space to, say, just start another third-grade class. Um, it, you know, you can do that in under-enrolled schools, many of which are in the African-American community. So it's going to be difficult for them to actually solve the class size issue. Having said that, there's going to be more money for teacher aides. There will be more money for more, class, for more teachers if they have the classroom space and can work it out. So that's one issue. The issue on the um, nurses and social workers, librarians, um, 
There's one, one issue there is that apparently they have a challenge trying to fill those positions, people who are willing to take those jobs, uh, especially in, you know, really, um, you know, socially challenged uh, schools. Uh, but nevertheless, the money is there and it's available and that's a good thing. Um, what, one kind of uh, dimension of this that's worth noting is that, you know, if you're a principal, you're given a budget. And you said, you know, use the money as best you can. And the, the CPS gives a lot of flexibility to principals to say, you know, you think you need a, a, a social worker or maybe two? You should be, have, be able to do that. On the other hand, maybe you don't need one. Maybe you need one half time or maybe you don't. Or, well, or, you know, same thing with a nurse. Maybe you have a whole lot of kids who need a lot of nursing attention. You have a big school. You need a full-time nurse. Maybe two. On the other hand, maybe you have a small school. Maybe it's a small school with not a lot of issues. And you're now going to be required to hire somebody that, so it's, it's, you know, that you know, might not be busy all the time. So they took away a little flexibility for principals. So I don't know what the how that'll work out and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but no question about it. The strike for CPS to come to the table and make some concessions on those issues, and I think that's a good thing. All right. Well, I tell you what, just being in this room with me has softened you up because you were not nearly as no, conciliatory I said, I, no, to the teachers in I, that essay. But I, let me, let me I still think it was, the strike was a mistake. I think those are the kinds of issues that adults are supposed to work out at the table. And 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 I agree with you. I'm like, I agree with you so much. So and you agree with me and I agree with you. What's yeah. going on here? Well, no, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, hold I, on. And here's enough. the problem. Here, here's the problem. Uh, Lori Lightfoot ran on those issues. Right. And, in and my does anyone opinion, think Lori Lightfoot's against no, nurses and social workers? But yeah. Well, okay, I don't think, no, I don't think Lori Lightfoot has something against uh, nurses and social workers, but until the teachers went on strike. Until the teachers forced her to deal with the issue of a lack of nurses in the school, that was not on the table. And I don't understand how it could be. It was in the budget. It just wasn't in to the extent they wanted. Well, now, Peter Cunningham knows more than anybody in the city of Chicago about the difference between contractually obligating a school system to hire somebody and putting positions in a budget. Putting positions in a budget is an age-old trick that budget managers, and Peter knows this even better than I do because he was on the inside. I'm trying to figure it out from the outside. What they do is they put positions in a budget it, draw the salary so they can go pay for something else and they never hire it. How did you become so cynical after all these years in journalism? I thought that I thought you were an idealist. <laughs> I am an idealist. I just uh, see the world as I'm it trying really to figure is. That out myself. Try to, I see the world as it is and try to change it. So anyway, uh, until the teachers went on strike, the um, the, the city powers, the, the Lori Lightfoot and the Board of Education and the larger civic and corporate community was not championing the issue of nurses in schools and librarians in schools and lower class size. It took teachers to go on strike. And your last point is a very good one that even I hadn't thought of. Now, now I'm going to have to give you credit for it. Not only did the teachers f- force the mayor and her allies to deal with issues that they were ignoring, but they paid for it. You talk about generosity that sometimes in the Tribune's editorial boards uh, were writing, shut up and take the money, and the teachers went on strike anyway for an issue that was not their paycheck. They ended up underwriting it. I'm waiting for that Tribune or sometimes editorial to thank the teachers of the city of Chicago for, one, forcing Lori Lightfoot to do the right thing. I give her credit for doing the right thing. It took a little forcing. And, two, for subsidizing it. Well, if they didn't go on strike, they wouldn't be subsidizing it. But would they have gotten it? That's your question. You well, they wouldn't you have gotten you, it. You don't think they would have gotten progress on that issue? No. Absolutely. Uh, I, they weren't even on the table. See, I, I feel differently. You well, have, let me ask you this, Peter. You, in, in your position in, in politics, and you've watched politics in the city of Chicago going back to the 90s, under Daley, under Rahm, have you ever seen a mayor make a concession that he wasn't forced to make? In a uh, bargaining agreement that didn't require a strike, you mean? In anything. 
If a mayor, when did a mayor ever say, you know what, Pete, I'm going to call you and I want you to write this speech. Nobody's putting any pressure on me to spend money that could spend uh, on X, Y, Z, on poor kids. But I'm going to do it anyway, because I think it's the right thing to do. And good golly, I just feel like doing the right thing. I mean, uh, we had 25 (laughs) years of labor peace, uh, 22 of them when Daly was the mayor. He made loads of concessions about salaries and everything. They, for the most part, he gave generous salaries. Almost every single year, he raised taxes to the cap for the schools. So, you know, I, I, I just think that there was an attitude then that like, okay, let's work this out. Let's figure out how to do this. Let's get it done. And, and all of these issues, despite what's in the contract, despite what's in the budget, despite what is written down, despite what has been reported in the paper, all of these issues are still going to require people to sit down together and say, listen, how can we do this? Mm-hmm. Okay, we can't find enough psychologists to put one in every school. So how do we work this out? So for this year, can we have a couple of rovings? Uh, you know, they, they're just going to have to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's the way it should be. And one of the points I made in my piece was, so we have lots of challenges in the Chicago public school system. We have under-enrollment. We have accountability uh, systems that are complicated. Um, and it were a subject of a big fight. Uh, or of, they, they were an issue during the negotiations, although SQRP, which is the name of the accountability system, still is in, in force. All of these issues have to be worked out. They still have to be worked out that way. But are we going to have five years of every interaction between CTU and CPS or between CTU and the mayor is an accusation or a grievance? Is, like, is that like the only form of conversation we're capable of? Accusation or grievance? Because if it is, that's not good for well, anybody. Well, it's a two-way street. It now, is. Uh, and and when two- have you heard Mayor Lightfoot or Janice Jackson say anything like that sounds like a, a grievance or an accusation? I mean, they, they've, been, they've been absolutely respectful. They keep on offering—they were offering olive branches that's not true. to the union throughout the negotiation. That, and- they, they offered the teachers—here's the way, way it went down. They offered the teachers a raise. The teachers said, we want to deal with these— Uh, non-salary issues. They said they weren't going to deal with them. The teachers went on strike and they suddenly dealt with them in the midst of the strike. Lori Lightfoot said, I'm not going to bail out uh, the the public schools of Chicago, which I would think is a very revealing comment. Uh, It's one that's rhetoric that would come right out of Bruce Rauner's playbook, not the Democratic uh, liberal or lefty or whatever she is, progressive mayor of the city of Chicago. Very disappointed with but that she guy. is. That is what she is. She's a progressive mayor. Yeah, but but you, you asked, and I'm just pointing out some evidence, that she's human. Uh, the Chicago Teachers Union, and I've criticized them for this, went in way too hard for Tony Preckwinkle in the mayoral runoff. They didn't endorse your candidate either, Bill Daly. Uh, and I uh, just had to slip that in there. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, so I do believe their rhetoric was over the top. But Lori Lightfoot is a, a grown woman. And, you know, okay, how long? Do you, do, you, do you stay mad at somebody? Maybe, okay, you let a week go by, Peter Cunningham? Where's the Peter Cunninghams in the world telling Lori Lightfoot, call Stacey Davis Gates. Go have coffee with Stacey Davis Gates. Break bread. You were always a that guy. Why didn't they do that right after the election? Okay, they endorsed Tony Preckwinkle. She lost big time. So why didn't they then call over and say, hey, we'd like to sit down and meet? The way they tell the story, they tried to, uh, and they were rejected. Really? Yeah, that's how they tell the story. I do know one thing, that Lori Lightfoot never made any kind of uh, overture on her own. And there was never any attempt. You talk about grownups in a room. You're absolutely correct. I agree 100% with you. So where were the grownups in the room? And let's say Lori got elected in April, in May. To sit down and say, what are your issues, Jesse Sharkey and Stacey Davis-Gates? Well, we care about having lower librarians. Well, that's an interesting issue. I, I campaigned on that. We have something in common. Here's my good friend Peter Cunningham. Maybe he can work a deal. And my understanding is, is that they put some of that money in the budget. It wasn't enough to please them. But it's not as if Janet Jackson wasn't talking about the issue during the budget uh, round in, in, in May and June, right? It just wasn't enough for them. No, but you're you're but, now what you're doing is a, is a very clever rhetorical move here. You're not directly answering the question I asked you, which is you said where are the grown-ups in the room? And so what what you're describing is a situation where the uh, the mayor's uh, educational appointees instead of meeting 
with the heads, the head of the teachers union. You're saying that the mayor's educational appointees refused to meet with the union all a- summer. Absolutely, no, I, I believe that is not. True. I believe uh, no. I'm saying that Lori Lightfoot herself did not make a positive step. So uh, how do you know what happened? What happened? I mean, how do you know she didn't? How do you know that she didn't call over? And how do you know she didn't offer to meet? How do you well, know she didn't have her 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 people say, you know, and I'd like to. Connect with. I I've mean, heard I, from I both know. sides I mean, of this, on the, of both sides of the of the equation in this one. I mean, you know, I don't know. I, I don't work for Lori Lightfoot. No. Just to be clear, and I want to make sure your listeners know that I don't work for this administration. And you did not work for Rahm Emanuel. And I did not work friends. for Rahm Emanuel. Uh, and but I. And since you pointed out that the CTU didn't endorse my candidate, I have one question for you. Go ahead. Why aren't they sponsoring your podcast? All right, that's a good question. I mean, you got. You got. You got. <laughs> that's uh, a good Question. You got three other unions yeah. sponsoring it. Four, What's, uh, yeah, but four. whatever. That's a great question. Can you say that again? No, just kidding. Uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I believe that the point that you made is a very good one. Uh, that uh, there were not people were not acting like what did you what was the word you use like grown ups in the room that was and uh, so as a result we lost a lot of time and a lot of antagonism now here we are right now we, they here, cut, but here, here we are you're exactly right here we are and my point is this okay it's over we've had our strike there's been some blood on the floor no question about it we had our election there was plenty of blood on the floor there uh, certainly there were some hard feelings uh, on both sides about the election but here we are now, are we going to work together? You know, CPS just announced a $135 million curriculum initiative. And the purpose of this is to help teachers, to reduce the burden on teachers who spend Saturdays and Sundays and evenings on online trying to prepare lesson, ter- lesson material, uh, lesson plans. And the idea is, how do we help them? How do we create curriculum and create lesson plans so that teachers don't have to do that? That's a great initiative. It's only going to work if they're actually sitting together and working together on it and not pointing fingers and not grieving each other and, you know, just working together. How do we look at the under-enrollment issue? I mean, the, the, the student population is down to 360 and is projected to keep going down. Everybody knows, you know, how painful it was for all those school closings in 2013. But what are we going to do about the fact that the student population keeps on declining? You know, we, we can either demagogue the issue or, or we can work together on it. What are we going to do about accountability? What are we going to do about, you know, all kinds of issues? Yeah. Discipline, you know, student discipline. How, yeah. how do we do that together? Yeah, that's a valid point. And, of course, uh, I'm not, I don't want to be a demagogue, but part of the reason why population is falling is that the city's become more expensive. So I'm sure you totally agree with me that we should stop doing a subsidizing a massive uh, upscale developments like Lincoln Yards and the 78. Is that what's causing the city well, to be so partly, expensive? Uh, partly, it drives up the cost of housing in the city, and it drives up uh, the. It definitely drives up property taxes. Every time you create uh, a TIF district in a gentrifying area, you're preventing the board of education from taxing the growth in that area. You know this as well. I taught you TIFs. The well, theory so, is that it generates growth that otherwise might not be there, as you know. Yeah, that's but the theory. We could, we could have the TIF debate forever. But but just so the point is, just so we know, understand the impact it directly has on a. Property property taxpayer, the extra money that would flow to the Board of Education uh, from a TIF district is uh, would not happen for 23 years. So for 23 years, the Board of Education is unable to tax the uh, the new property. To capture the growth. To yes. capture the growth. And as a result, they have to raise their property taxes throughout the city of Chicago. So it's a tax hike. So it makes the city more costly. Your property taxes, where you live, in wherever through you the live, roof are through the roof right. in part because of the tips you're welcome for, you're welcome for me I and in part because of these wonderful contracts that we've all agreed on so they, they're all part of the issue they're right? all part of the they're issue all part, you know the cost of running government goes up. I support what? more taxes I'm for, I'm I'm 100% in support of it wow just to know <laughs> just to be really clear I'm not complaining not he's not running for office anytime I'm so. not complaining I, about it I and I'm, I'm I support the higher salaries for teachers even Though I often point out that, relatively speaking, relative to teachers around the country, and even many of them in the region, not all of them, they're pretty well paid, they have pretty good pensions, lifetime earnings probably in the neighborhood of about $4 million now when you add up their salaries and their pensions, assuming they live to the normal uh, uh, age. So 
but I support it. I, I 100% <laughs> support right. paying teachers well. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to let him get the last, because I'm a generous guy. I'm going to let Pete get the last word on this local issue. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about national issues, the lessons learned uh, from Tuesday's election going forward. Because one thing Peter Cunningham and I do agree on, we both want a new president in 2020. That's one thing we do agree on. We'll be right back. That's after. correct. <laughs> The Ben Jarofsky Show is supported by Northwestern University's part-time master's program in literature and liberal studies. Students learn from dynamic and diverse faculty as they build advanced skills for critical analysis, writing, and research. Evening classes are held on Northwestern's Evanston and Chicago campuses. The spring quarter application deadline is January 15th. Learn more at sps.northwestern.edu slash masters. Hey, podcast fans, the Chicago Sun-Times political web series, The Fran Spielman Show, is now available as a podcast. The Fran Spielman Show features weekly interviews with the lawmakers, journalists, and others who are shaping our city. I don't know if you knew this about Fran or not, but Fran holds nothing back. She goes deep into City Hall to bring you the real scoop on Chicago politics. And right now, you can listen to her show on all of your favorite podcast apps. Head to City Hall with Fran. She's going to be in our studio tomorrow recording a brand new episode. Who will be the guest? Oh, you're going to have to wait to find out. But you can get even more great political coverage now from the Chicago Sun-Times with the Fran Spielman Show. Listen and subscribe now at suntimes.com forward slash Fran hyphen show. One more time, that's suntimes.com forward slash Fran hyphen show. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from the Chicago Sun-Times. Peter P.C. Cunningham, my guest, political strategist, political speech writer. Wrote, uh, he, he probably wrote Daly's best-known speech. Well, no, it's not best-known anymore, Pete. Only old-timers like me remember. But you wrote the his 2021, whatever it was, 20, 2010, I'm getting my uh, years mixed up, speech, where he talked about expanding number of schools. Chicago was the first move toward charter schools. But we're going to move away from it. Renaissance 2010? Renaissance 2010, that's it. You wrote well, that, that hold on. That was in 2004, and charters started in the 90s. Wait, but time out. I know, I understand. But you wrote that speech, correct? Probably, yeah. Yeah, probably. Probably. <laughs> well, I, I can't remember. I wasn't really a speechwriter at that point. I was working for Arnie, but I think I probably. I think you did write hand that in that one. Yeah, because uh, I remember uh, writing about it and giving you a hard time about it. Anyway, all right, uh, let's move forward. Let's talk national politics. You are you follow it as closely as I do. And on Tuesday, there were uh, two significant. Uh, elections. Uh, one in the, the state elections in Virginia, the Democrats took the House and the Senate. They already control the governor's uh, seat. I think uh, so now they get to draw the maps. I think you and I agree on that one. Good. Uh, and fair maps, what a joke. Let's throw that out the window right now. Um, sucker's game. Yep. And uh, we're out of eye on that one. Uh, all the good government people in the state of Illinois who are trying to get us to do a fair map deal. Uh, are just basically doing the Republicans. Right, bidding. everyone's for reform when you're on the losing side, and then when you're on the winning side, you're like, sorry. Yeah. Now, <laughs> revenge. Revenge is the opposite of reform. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's the other yeah. side of the coin. Yeah, that is true. Right. Uh, all right, so there was that, and then, of course, there was the uh, victory. Kentucky, right? In Bashir's in Kentucky beat uh, Matt Bevan, the Republican incumbent, even though Donald John Trump had gone to Kentucky on Monday, the day before, and said, this is all about me. Elect uh, Bevan to send a message to those dastardly Democrats. Right. Well, I'm, I hope he's right on that particular point that this was a message about him. But it was more than that. Um, and I read a fair bit about it today. First of all, I guess Bevan still hasn't conceded, right? And it, it's less than a, a point, so there's going to be a re, recount. Uh, I even saw one story about how the Republican legislature was saying, we may have to decide yeah, this. Yeah, saw that too. What about anyway, pirates? Yeah, I know, a bunch <laughs> of pirates. Yeah, total crooks. But um, uh, I think um, th th there are a couple of factors. I hope that Trump, uh, rejecting Trump was a factor, but I'm not sure it was. He, he, won, he won the state by 30 points. But um, Bevin was very unpopular one of the most unpopular governors in the country, maybe the most. His, his approval rating was in the 30s after one term. But And one of the big reasons was because his policies were so um, uh, cruel and abusive to regular folks. I mean, he was going after uh, health care costs for poor people, uh, Medi Medicaid. He was trying to cut Medicare. He was trying to cut retirement savings, retirement money. He 
He's, you know, I keep saying this over and over and over again to everybody in the Democratic Party. We have to focus on bread and butter issues. Job, home, health care, education, retirement, my big five. That's what you got to focus on. And, um, you know, I think that was a big factor in this election. Uh, Bashir was focused on those issues, was going right at Bevan for putting those issues at risk. And the Republicans have been putting those issues at risk nationally and in states all over the country for a, a long time. Sam Brown back in, in Kansas and people like that just, just taking away uh, things that people need and distracting them with the, you know, the cultural debates about you know, uh, reproductive rights or gun rights. Uh, you know, that's a big distraction while they're simultaneously cutting taxes to an, a, an unhealthy amount, literally starving government and taking away the basic safety net that people rely on. And in places like Kentucky, there's a lot of people who rely on that. Wait, where were the five? I, I want Job, to- home, health care, education, retirement. What do you mean by home? I mean, quality, affordable housing. Housing mm-hmm. is what I mean. Uh, I'm just trying to keep the words simple, but, you know. Affordable housing, health care, and education. All three of those are now becoming about affordability. Well, uh, when you especially, see... All right. So when you take into consideration the fact that uh, uh, Matt Bevan, the incumbent governor, Republican uh, in Kentucky, was so unpopular, uh, does that detract from the Democratic victory? In other words, are there lessons that you can draw from Kentucky that could be applied to November, or do you just look at it and say, yeah, Bevin, it was just a one-shot deal. Bevin's unpopular. There's really nothing we can do uh, in states like the Kentucky or in areas like Kentucky and Michigan or Wisconsin, et cetera. I would not say that. I think that, I think that, um, I think Tony Evers up in Wisconsin uh, brought that back into the Democratic uh, camp by focusing on bread and butter issues. I think Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez got elected on bread and butter issues. She was talking about health care and jobs. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think that every time we forget about this and think it's about something else, uh, we lose. And so I hope that that's the lesson everybody takes from it, that we can win anywhere if we really rebrand ourselves, not as the party that's trying to be everything to everybody, uh, all things to all people, but as the party that's really, really focused on the little guy, on the American dream, on the middle class promise, on making the basics you know, possible for everybody. That doesn't mean we can't try and tackle climate change, which I think in many ways is an economic issue and a healthcare issue as much as, you know, uh, you know, not just some liberal issue. It's actually going to affect our lives. It's going to affect our jobs. It's going to affect everything uh, and our health, of course. Um, But I think that we have to remember that that's what most people are thinking about every day. How do they live? How do they afford health care? How do they do they have enough money to retire? Mm -hmm. You know, does their job pay enough? So to me, I'm really, really focused on income inequality. I think that's obviously a huge issue for Democrats. And if we can, you know, connect with, with, with voters on that. And it's more than just minimum wage, you know. It's equal pay for women. It's equal pay for people of color. It's equal pay for, you know, uh, LGBTQ folks. It's, it, it, it's all these issues. Economic issues are always, almost always, the number one issue. Yeah, and they work the best for Democrats. Now, let's go they back They work to, the best for Democrats. Uh, when, you, when you talk about health care, how far, in your humble opinion, should the Democrats go on this issue? Elizabeth Warren has just come out with her Medicare for all plan. Bernie had already had his. Uh, then, you, of course, you had the uh, the Amy Klobuchar's, uh, the primary, and the Pete Buttigieg is saying, let's not go too far. Public option, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're, we're going to hurt ourselves politically uh, by going too far. So what's your, what's your stance on this? Oh, I'm for public option as a path to uh, more and more people getting on to, uh, you know, uh, as getting us closer and closer to a single-payer system. I think that uh, it's just practically speaking and politically speaking impossible to tell everybody, you're losing your private health care, and we're all going on government health care uh, quickly. Tomorrow. I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just don't think it's practical, and I don't think it's politically smart. But I think that a public option is a great solution. And, you know, I, I kind of feel there's a little falseness going on with the debate uh, on two fronts. One is that if, if Elizabeth Warren, President Elizabeth Warren, was presented with a good public option bill, she'd sign it. And if Pete Buttigieg was presented with Medicare for All, 
passed by Congress, he'd sign that too. So they're all saying what they'd prefer, but the truth is they want the same thing. They want more people to, to, um, to get health care, and they want to lower costs. That's the piece that I think is um, less clear from anybody. Like, no one quite knows how to get rid of it. If you did Medicare for all, you'd theoretically have a smaller bureaucracy because everything would be covered, or pretty much everything would be covered. So you wouldn't have all these forms and all these people working for doctors who are saying this insurance plan covers it, but that one doesn't. There's a ton of the, the two big cost factors in healthcare, as I've read, are bureaucracy, administrative costs, and drug prices. And I don't know whether I think Medicare for all, or I think you know a, a bigger government role in controlling drug prices is needed. I don't quite fully know how it works. Maybe we negotiate prices, things that I guess Canada does that we don't do. But um, not an issue I'm an expert on by any means. But I'm, I'm for right now in 2019-20, I'm for the public option. And my hope and expectation is that more and more people will migrate to it and we'll get to you know something closer to a, a single payer system over time. Peter, how do you have your health insurance? I have it through an employer. And that started two, uh, five days ago. Up until then, I had it through COBRA. Before that, I had it through uh, Education Post, an employer. Talk about COBRA, having it as COBRA. Very expensive, $4,000 a month. I mean, it's a huge amount of money. Um, and uh, I've had some very serious health issues in my family. Uh, and we have some very expensive treatments. Um, I won't go into details, but, but uh, you know, it was a ridiculous amount of money. So, Costs are the big, big issue. And I, I, before I forget, I want to get back to one other point. Um, Senator Warren is taking a lot of heat over the cost of her plan, $20 trillion. So right now, Americans are spending 3 to $4 trillion a year on health care. The total bill, some of it comes from co-pays, some of it comes from employers, some of it comes in Medicaid and Medicare, so that comes from taxes. Some of it comes maybe from other places, I don't know where. We are already spending 3 to $4 trillion. Multiply it by 10 over a decade, that's 35 to 40 trillion. People are yelling about Elizabeth Warren's plan is going to cost $20 trillion. I don't know. That's what we're spending anyway. Yeah, no, it's, so, uh, you know, the, the, the private insurers are already spending a trillion a year to insure people. So they're just going to pay that in taxes instead of that. So I kind of feel as a disingenuous debate attacking her on her costs. She's going to, we're going to, you know, give health care to just as many people, maybe even more, if we had Medicare for all. Well, that disingenuous, yes, indeed. And that's generally how uh, uh, the discussion goes down uh, when it comes to health care, because you have to you, you have to attack it in such a way that gets distracts from the central problem, which is that many people can't afford health care, that you have a, right. your position. You left a job, so you know, because you had your health care with your your job so that you have to pay for it. Yeah. So that's utterly insane. I was uh, consulting for a couple of months, for about a year. But, but Freelance consulting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was paying for my own health care. It was a ridiculous amount of money. Yeah, fourth grand a, a month is ridiculous amount of money, yeah. So uh, I, 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 I'm with you. I remember when Obamacare passed, uh, my friends on the left who were for single payer said, this is an evolution. You watch. This movement is not, this is not going to satisfy uh, the need that we have in this country. This is the first phase. And your good friend Rahm Emanuel made that point <laughs> in uh, The Atlantic uh, when he, he just reminded people that, yeah. and I, I can't remember all the details, but we started, the government got into the healthcare business in the 30s. Yeah. Got its toe in the water. Mm -hmm. Then in the 60s, Medicaid and Medicare came, came along. Then in the 70s or 80s, uh, CHIP, Children's Health Insurance Program, came along. Mm -hmm. And then in the 2000s or with Obama, we had Obamacare. So it's like we've, we've done it this way, this way, this way. So, you know, it's been a step one at a time. Well, speaking of my good friend, uh, Rahm Emanuel, he... Uh had, Take a chill pill, man. Oh, sorry, Rob. Uh, he had he made some comments during the. Um, uh, I, I can't remember which debate it was. I've lost track of the debates, Peter. Uh, where he said that the 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 Democratic Party should not uh, focus. Uh, on its base, it's to reach out and try to get those swing voters to come over and vote for them because the base will be fired up for Donald Trump uh, because they hate Donald Trump. That was his analysis. We've been talking about that uh, ever since with various people coming into the studio, get their thoughts on that. When I look at Kentucky, two things. One, it was an unpopular uh, Republican governor, governor yeah. but two, the teachers unions, the 
teachers unions that sort of get bashed here in the city of Chicago by many of my centrist friends, the teachers unions of Kentucky went all out for Bashirs. That was rallying the base at its base with good old fashioned organizing, door knocking and fundraising, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, it was both. And why do we have to choose? I mean, well, you need both. That's what my right. point is. Yeah. So, and so, you know, why do you have to choose? But I can tell you, if you talk to Sherry Bustos, Congresswoman of Western Illinois, runs the DCCC, mm-hmm. she, you know, she wants the conversation to be about bread and butter issues. It's her job to protect those 40 seats that were flipped last year and uh, in, in, yeah, in 2018. And, um, she, you know, she wants to focus on bread and butter issues. And if we don't, her view is we're going to lose the House. Mm-hmm. And if we lose the House and obviously lose other things or don't win the Senate and, God forbid, re-elect Donald Trump, you know, we're, we're, we're really facing the nightmare scenario of all time. So her view is, you know, please stay focused on the bread and butter issues and don't get too far out there on whether it's issues I fully support, whether social justice issues or sort of more what's called identity politics. You know, stay focused on the swing voters and the middle class and just the basics. I I tend to think that these distinctions are a little uh, exaggerated. You know, which ones? I, I mean, people who focus on the bread and butter issues doesn't mean those are just swing voters. Everybody has bread no, and butter bread and butter issues. issues would have fired up people, let's say in Milwaukee, when we talk about yeah. uh, the why did Hillary Clinton lose Wisconsin to Donald Trump? Yeah. Uh, and part of the reason was that there was such a low turnout in Milwaukee. And Detroit and Philadelphia. Well, that's okay. That gets into Michigan and Pennsylvania. Correct, yeah. yes. And uh, so you need the those bread and butter issues uh, would fire up those voters as well, but you have to do it in such a way that make people think that it does apply to them, that they will be the beneficiaries right. of... So you take an issue like guns. So there's an awful lot of Democrats, me among them, who think we need much tougher gun control, right? Uh, Sherry Bustos would tell you, please don't come out to Western Illinois or Central Michigan or Western Pennsylvania and talk about those issues, because that issue alone will will prevent them from hearing you on the bread and butter issues. So, so those are the kind of challenges we have. You know? All right. Uh, and uh, the last time we were in the show, I asked you which candidates you were leaning to. And I, you made, I think you said three. Am I right? Did he, did he say three? I think, let me see if I can do this from memory. It was um, Warren, Biden, and Buttigieg. Am I right about that? Uh, maybe, maybe. I, Where are you I, at now? I, I have, um, and I, 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 you know, like you, I heard you talking about how you got a soft spot for Joe Biden. I do too. <laughs> I was, but I, um, yeah, I don't know but, why. <laughs> uh, before we started the show, I talked about how I really, really felt like, uh, you know, he's not going to represent change for a lot of people, and he's been around an awful long time, and people almost always look for something that looks and feels different. I have a hard time imagining how he'll do that. Uh, I'm super impressed by Elizabeth Warren's campaign, um, and if she's the candidate, I'll give her everything I have to support her. Uh, I, you know, I think Pete Buttigieg's politics. First of all, I think he's a gifted, gifted politician. He's really um, articulate. Uh, he does his homework. Uh, he knows his issues. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited by both of those uh, campaigns. I'm, I would not say I'm a Bernie guy. Uh, no, there's a big surprise. Yeah, and it's not that I don't like him or anything. Uh-huh. I, I, I actually um, thought, you know, that he pulled the, the conversation in 2016 to the left, and that was a good thing. Mm-hmm. But I just never saw him as electable, and electability is important. Uh, and I still don't. I still think he wow. can easily be caricatured as, you know, someone who's out of touch with the vast majority of America. Well, you know, to quote your uh, Mayor Pete, back to you, uh, they're going to do that to all of them. They are. And uh, so it really doesn't matter. You might as well be the real deal. I know, but it, but it doesn't resonate. Um, it doesn't resonate when you're talking about Biden, for example. It doesn't resonate when you're talking about Buttigieg. Well, I would make the argument that the fact that they would go hard at him uh, for being exactly what he is would resonate with people who do care about bread and butter issues because he is all about bread and butter issues. He is. He 
is championing everything you've named, everything you mentioned, health care. Yep. Inequality, inequities, uh, yeah, job inequality. Yeah, yeah. Yep. He, that's Bernie. You yep. know what I mean? So uh, it, you could argue that if it's a phony assault, if you try to make Pete Buttigieg into Che Guevara, okay, then that just shows you're a bunch of frauds. But yeah. if you if it's like Bernie, Bernie would be like, yeah, yeah, that's me. Sorry. Yeah, no, I mean, to his credit, he's he's as honest as can be about what he stands for and who he is. He's not pretending to be anything other than who he is. I saw a great quote from um, Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, be careful who you pretend to be because that's who you are. Whoa, man. And, that's Kurt Vonnegut. And, or because that's who you will be. Or yeah, like that. And, and that's I, pretty good. I think good. that, you know, uh, wow. both Bernie uh, Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are... Uh, I think very authentic to themselves. I don't think they're making it up, and that's not true of a lot of candidates who, you know, one minute want to sound like they're tough on crime, then the next minute they want to sound like they're, you know, all about restorative justice and you know criminal justice reform, and then the minute after that they, you know, they're sort of, you know, Wall Street Democrats, and then they turn around and they're sort of, um, you know, raise the minimum wage Democrats, and it, it you know, I, I just think people sometimes. Uh, uh, try on a lot of different costumes in the middle of these campaigns. All right, I think that's as good a, a place as ever to cut it off because that's as close as Peter Cunningham will ever come to giving a shout-out to Bernie Sanders. I think the next time Peter comes in here, he's going to be wearing a Bernie Sanders T-shirt. If, if he's the nominee, on. I'll vote for him. I'll even give him some money. I'll say that. I'll, you, know, you know me, I'll vote for anybody over this guy. Would you go knock on doors in Michigan Absol- and Wisconsin absolutely. for Bernie Sanders? Absolutely, if he's the nominee. But you're asking me who I support in the primary, right. and he's not my first choice. Right. <laughs> but, but, you Second know, it, he's interesting because he, he seems to motivate people from different segments. So, you know, sometimes he's got young people. Sometimes, like you say, he's got kind of bread and butter older guys. Yeah. Uh, he's certainly got old lefties for sure. <laughs> but then he's got, like, young lefties. Yeah. Uh, so he's, he's a fascinating character, and he's, he's enriched the debate. So... And I would you know. say he's got some on the right, too, the whole blow up the system, uh, you know, uh, people there. He's got some on the right. Correct. Yeah, the, no, yeah right. I think there are there are there are Sanders Trump voters. I mean, yeah. or Sanders, you know, <laughs> there no, really are voters who would. Uh, yes. Could or, or maybe there'll be Trump Sanders voters, people who voted for Trump who will now vote for Sanders. For Bernie. Yeah. You know. All right. Uh, Peter Cunningham is going to be a regular. He promised on our show. That's correct. Uh, thank you, uh, Robert Mueller. So uh, thank you for showing up today. We'll bring him back next week. Uh, ne- excuse me, next month as well. Uh, so I, I won't see you before then. He'll bring his guitar. He promises. Right. None of this weaseling out of with the guitar thing. He played a John Sebastian song the last time he was on. It would have been perfect for him to have played a Dylan song this time because Bobby D was just in Chicago. So maybe when you come back, uh, next month in December, you'll bring your guitar and do a Dylan song. How about that? You got it. And let's see if uh, Peter Cunningham can guess the artist of our song of the day, Ben. Ben sings a song of the day every day. Which is not singing. I don't think you could do this. Well, he's kind of my age, so uh, he's a little younger. But, um, okay, here we go. <clears throat> Torn between two lovers. Feeling like a fool. Who sings that song? You know who sings that song? I don't. Who is it? Did you recognize the song? I don't. I don't. Oh, my God. Torn between two lovers feeling like a fool. Yeah, and I forget the... Mary McGregor. Yeah, Mary McGregor. It was a, a, I think it's a one-hit wonder from the 70s. I, Who is Mary McGregor? I, it doesn't matter. The point, I was thinking of it because uh, I, well, I, I can't even remember why I was thinking. Oh, no, I know why I was thinking of it. Because I was walking down from the, the train stop to the studio, and I was thinking that I had Miles from In These Times, who represents the left in the Democratic Party. And I had uh, Peter P.C. Cunningham, who's sort of the centrist of the Democratic Party. And I was thinking, torn between... Anyway, so that's how my mind works. We do have an update before we get out of here. I don't know why, guys, but I'm craving bread and butter after uh, today's interview. Yeah, I know. A lot of bread bread and butter butter talk. Uh, We do have a... We have to say congratulations to Illinois Democratic State Senator Maddie Hunter, because she was just appointed chair of the Illinois Senate Transportation Committee today. That's right. Now, if you recall, our former Transportation Committee chair, the guy Hunter's replacing, was a fellow by the name of Martin Sandoval. And Ben, uh, what happened to that guy again? Uh, Martin's up to his eyeballs and all kinds of...
kinds of federal investigations of wrongdoing. Oh, so uh, they, you know, my beloved Democratic Party decided it was a good idea to distance themselves. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Federal investigations. We're still waiting on all the details on all that, by the way. But hey, Senator uh, Maddie Hunter. Now, myself and our host, Ben Jarofsky, we're not going to lie. We don't have a lick of political experience, okay? <laughs> I'm still trying to get Ben to run for that water reclamation gig, though. Come on, man. You love water. I do love water. It's very tasty. Uh, come on. Run for it, please. There's people on the live stream that want you to run for it as well. So, yeah, we don't have any political experience, but Democratic Senator Maddie Hunter, we really think you should run with this advice here. Before you do anything in this new position, ask yourself one question. Will the feds raid my office <laughs> if I do this? Yeah. Or, you know, maybe consider working from home. Yeah, that might be a good idea. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you for that breaking news. Peter Cunningham, thank you very much. Miles Conflassen as well. And, of course, the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois. Back home in Alton, uh, Peter, I don't know if you know this, they call him White Lightning. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. And remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows and Benny J bonus interviews at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites, chicago.suntimes.com, chicagoreader.com, and wherever else you download podcasts. Downloaders, we live stream this program. You should check it out sometime. Tuesdays through Fridays, 1 until 3 p.m. Central Time. Once again, at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites and the Chicago Sun-Times YouTube channel. Find us on Facebook at Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J Show. Also on Twitter at Benny J Show. And, well, Ben's in charge of our Instagram account. <laughs> he may check it. He may not. I don't know. He's got awesome pictures on there. The Ben Jarofsky Show, J-O-R-A, V as in victory, S-K-Y, show. See you tomorrow.